Section 37 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Richards. Chapter 18. Mount Ararat and Kurdistan. The shadows of evening are beginning to settle down over the wild, mountainous country round about. It is growing uncomfortably chilly for this early in the evening, and the prospects look favorable for a supperless and most disagreeable night. When I descry a village perched in an opening among the mountains, a mile or thereabouts off to the right, repairing thither, I find it to be a Kurdish village, where the hovels are more excavations than buildings. Buffaloes, horses, goats, chickens, and human beings all find shelter under the same roof. Their respective quarters are nothing but a mere railing of rough poles, and as the question of ventilation is never even thought of, the effect upon one's olfactory nerves upon entering is anything but reassuring. The filth and rags of these people is something abominable. On account of the chilliness of the evening, they have donned their heavier raiment. These have evidently had rags patched on top of other rags, for years past until they have gradually developed into a thick quilted garment, in the innumerable seams of which the most disgusting entomological specimens, bred and engendered by their wretched mode of existence, live and perpetuate their kind. However, repulsive as the outlook most assuredly is, I have no alternative but to cast my lot among them till morning. I am conducted into the sheikh's apartment, a small room partitioned off with a pole from a stable full of horses and buffaloes, and where darkness is made visible by the sickly glimmer of a grease lamp. The sheikh, a thin, sallow-faced man of about forty years, is reclining on a mattress in one corner smoking cigarettes. A dozen ill-conditioned ragamuffins are squatting about in various attitudes, while the rag-tag and bobtail of the population crowd into the buffalo stable and survey me and the bicycle from outside the partition pole. A circular wooden tray containing abundance of bread, a bowl of yogurt, and a small quantity of peculiar stringy cheese that resembles chunks of dried codfish, warped and twisted in the drying, is brought in and placed in the middle of the floor. Everybody in the room at once gather around it and begin eating with as little formality as so many wild animals. The sheikh silently motions for me to do the same. The yogurt bowl contains one solitary wooden spoon with which they take turns at eating mouthfuls. One is compelled to draw the line somewhere, even under the most uncompromising circumstances, and I naturally draw it against eating yogurt with the same wooden spoon, making small scoops with pieces of bread, I dip up yogurt and eat scoop and all together. These particular curds seem absolutely ignorant of anything in the shape of mannerliness, or of consideration for each other at the table. When the yogurt has been dipped into twice or thrice all around, the sheikh coolly confiscates the bowl, eats part of what is left, pours water into the remainder, stirs it up with his hand, and deliberately drinks it all up. One or two others seize all the cheese, utterly regardless of the fact that nothing remains for myself and their companions, 
who, by the by, seemed to regard it as perfectly natural proceeding. After supper they returned to their squatting attitudes around the room, and to a resumption of their never-ceasing occupation of scratching themselves. The eminent economist who lamented the wasted energy represented in the wagging of all dogs' tails in the world ought to have traveled through Asia on a bicycle and have been compelled to hobnob with the villagers. He would undoubtedly have wept with sorrow at beholding the amount of this same wasted energy represented by the above-mentioned occupation of the people. The most loathsome member of this interesting company is a wretched old hypocrite who rolls his eyes about and heaves a deep-drawn sigh of Allah every few minutes, and then looks furtively at myself and the sheikh to observe its effects. His sole garment is a roundabout mantle that reaches to his knees, and which seems to have been manufactured out of the tattered remnants of other tattered remnants tacked carelessly together without regard to shape, size, color, or previous condition of cleanliness. His thin, scrawny legs are bare. His long, black hair is matted and unkempt. His beard is stubby and unlovely to look at. His small black eyes twinkle in the semi-darkness like ferret's eyes, while soap and water have, to all appearances, been altogether stricken from the category of his personal requirements. Probably it is nothing but the lively workings of my own imagination, but this wretch appears to me to entertain a decided preference for my society, constantly insinuating himself as near me as possible, necessitating constant watchfulness on my part to avoid actual contact with him. Eternal vigilance is, in this case, the price of what it is unnecessary to expatiate upon, further than to say that self-preservation becomes, under such conditions, preeminently the first law of occidental nature. Soon the sallow-faced sheikh suddenly bethinks himself that he is in the august presence of a hakim and beckoning me to his side, displays an ugly wound on his knee, which has degenerated into a running sore, and which he says was done with a sword. Of course he wants me to perform a cure. While examining the sheikh's knee, another old party comes forward and unbears his arm, also wounded with a sword. This not unnaturally sets me to wondering what sort of company I have gotten into, and how they came by sword wounds in these peaceful times. But my inquisitiveness is compelled to remain in abeyance to my limited linguistic powers. Having nothing to give them for the wounds, I recommend an application of warm salt water twice a day, feeling pretty certain, however, that they will be too lazy and trifling to follow their advice. Before dispersing to their respective quarters, the occupants of the room range themselves in a row and go through a religious performance lasting fully half an hour. They make almost as much noise as howling dervishes, meanwhile exercising themselves quite violently. Having made themselves holier than ever by these exercises, some take their departure. Others make up couches on the floor with sheepskins and quilts. Thin ice covers the still pools of water when I resume my toilsome route over the mountains at daybreak. 
A raw wind comes whistling from the east, and until the sun begins to warm things up a little, it is necessary to stop and buffet occasionally to prevent benumbed hands. Obtaining small lumps of wheaten dough cooked crisp in hot grease, like unsweetened doughnuts from a horseman on the road, I push ahead toward the summit and then down the eastern slope of the mountains, rounding in a budding hill about 9.30, the glorious snow-crowned peak of Ararat suddenly bursts upon my vision. It is a good forty leagues away, but even at this distance it dwarfs everything else in sight. Although surrounded by giant mountain chains that traverse the country at every conceivable angle, Ararat stands alone in its solitary grandeur, a glistening white cone rearing its giant head proudly and conspicuously above surrounding eminences, about mountains that are insignificant only in comparison with the white-robed monarch that has been a beacon light of sacred history since sacred history has been in existence. Descending now toward the Alashgird plain, a prominent theater of action during the war, I encounter splendid wheeling for some miles, but once fairly down on the level, cultivated plain, the road becomes heavy with dust. Villages dot the broad, expansive plain in every direction. Conical stacks of Tezek are observable among the houses, piled high up above the roofs, speaking of commendable forethought for the approaching cold winter. In one of the Armenian villages I am not a little surprised at finding a lone German. He says he prefers an agricultural life in this country, with all its disadvantages, to the hard, grinding struggle for existence and the compulsory military service of the fatherland. Here, he goes on to explain, there is no foamy lager, no money, no comfort, no amusement of any kind, but there is individual liberty and it is very easy making a living. Therefore, it is for me a better country than Deutschland. Everybody to their liking, I think, as I continue on across the plain. But for a European to be living in one of these little agricultural villages comes the nearest to being buried alive of anything I know of. The road improves in hardness as I proceed eastward, but the peculiar disadvantage of being a conspicuous and incomprehensible object on a populous level plain soon becomes manifest. Seeing the bicycle glistening in the sunlight as I ride along, horsemen come wildly galloping from villages miles away. Some of these wonder-stricken people endeavor to pilot me along branch trails leading to their villages, but the main caravan trail is now too easily distinguishable for any little deceptions of this kind to succeed. Here, on the Alashgird plain, I first hear myself addressed as Hamshari, a term which now takes the place of Effendi for the next five hundred miles. Owing to the disgust engendered by unsavory quarters in the wretched Dele Baba village last night, I have determined upon seeking the friendly shelter of a weak shock again tonight, preferring the chances of being frozen out at midnight to the entomological possibilities of village hovels. Accordingly, near sunset, I repair to a village not far from the road for the purpose of obtaining something to eat 
before seeking out a rendezvous for the night. It turns out to be a Kurdish village of Malosman, and the people are found to be so immeasurably superior in every particular to their kinsfolk of Dele Baba that I forthwith cancel my determination and accept their proffered hospitality. The Malosmanli are comparatively clean and comfortable, are reasonably well-dressed, seem well-to-do, and both men and women are, on the average, handsomer than the people of any village I've seen for days past. Almost all possess a conspicuously beautiful set of teeth, pleasant, smiling countenances, and good physique. They also seem to have, somehow, acquired easy, agreeable manners. The secret of the whole difference, I opine, is that, instead of being located among the inhospitable soil of barren hills, they are cultivating the productive soil of the Alashgird plain, and, being situated on the great Persian caravan trail, they find a ready market for their grain in supplying the caravans in winter. Their sheikh is a handsome and good-natured young fellow, sporting white clothes trimmed profusely with red braid. He spends the evening in my company, examining the bicycle, revolver, telescopic pencil case, L.A.W. badge, etc., and hands me his carved ivory case to select cigarettes from. It would have required considerable inducements to have trusted either my L.A.W. badge or the Smith & Wesson in the custody of any of our unsavory acquaintances of last night, notwithstanding their great outward show of piety. There are no deep-drawn sighs of Allah, nor ostentatious praying among the Malosmanli, but they bear the stamp of superior trustworthiness plainly on their faces and their bearing. There appears to be far more jocularity than religion among these prosperous villagers a trait that probably owes its development to their apparent security from want. It is no newly discovered trait of human character to cease all prayers and supplications whenever the granary is overflowing with plenty, and to commence devotional exercises again whenever the supply runs short. This rule would hold good among the childlike natives here, even more so than it does among our more enlightened selves. I sally forth into the chilly atmosphere of early morning from Malosman, and wheel eastward over an excellent road for some miles. An obliging native, en route to the harvest field, turns his buffalo araba around and carts me over a bridgeless stream, but several others have to be forded ere reaching Kirekkan, where I obtain breakfast. Here I am required to show my taskeri to the mudir and the Zaptia escorting me thither becomes greatly mystified over the circumstance that I am a Frank, and yet am wearing a Mussulman headband around my helmet, a new one I picked up on the road. This little fact appeals to him as something savoring of an attempt to disguise myself, and he grows amusingly mysterious while whisperingly bringing it to the mudir's notice. The habitual serenity and complacency of the corpulent Mudir's mind, however, is not to be unduly disturbed by trifles, and the untutored Zaptia's disposition to attach some significant meaning to it meets with nothing from his more enlightened superior but the silence of unconcern. More streams have to be forded ere I finally emerge onto higher ground. 
All along the Alashgird Plain, Ararat's glistening peak has been peeping over the mountain framework of the plain like a white beacon light showing above a dark rocky shore. But approaching toward the eastern extremity of the plain, my road hugs the base of the intervening hills and it temporarily disappears from view. In this portion of the country, camels are frequently employed in bringing the harvest from field to village threshing floor. It is a curious sight to see these awkwardly moving animals walking along beneath tremendous loads of straw, nothing visible but their heads and legs. Sometimes the meandering course of the Euphrates, now the eastern fork, and called the Murad Chai, brings it near the mountains, and my road leads over bluffs immediately above it. The historic river seems well supplied with trout hereabouts. I can look down from the bluffs and observe speckled beauties sporting about it in its pellucid waters by the score. Toward noon, I fool away fifteen minutes trying to beguile one of them into swallowing a grasshopper and a bent pin. But they are not the guileless creatures they seem to be when surveyed from the elevated bluff, so they steadily refuse whatever blandishments I offer. An hour later, I reach the village of Daslish, inhabited by a mixed population of Turks and Persians. At a shop kept by one of the latter, I obtain some bread and ghee, clarified butter, some tea and a handful of wormy raisins for dessert. For these articles, besides building a fire especially to prepare the tea, the unconscionable Persian charges the awful sum of two piastres, ten cents. Whereupon the Turks, who have been interested spectators of the whole nefarious proceeding, commence to abuse him roundly, for overcharging a stranger, unacquainted with the prices of the locality, calling him the son of a burnt father, and other names that Tino J unpleasantly in the Persian air, as though it was a matter of pounds sterling. Beyond Dashlish, Ararat again becomes visible. The country immediately around is a ravine-riven plateau, covered with boulders. An hour after leaving Dashlish, while climbing the eastern slope of a ravine, four rough-looking footmen appear on the opposite side of the slope. They are following after me and shouting, Kardash! These people with their old swords and pistols conspicuously about them always raise suspicions of brigands and evil characters under such circumstances as these. So I continue on up the slope, without heeding their shouting until I observe two of them turn back. I then wait, out of curiosity, to see what they really want. They approach with broad grins of satisfaction at having overtaken me. They have run all the way from Dashlish in order to overtake me and see the bicycle. Having heard of it after I had left, I am now but a short distance from the Russian frontier on the north, and the first Turkish patrol is this afternoon patrolling the road. He takes a wondering interest in my wheel, but doesn't ask the oft-repeated question, Rus or Ingolis. It is presumed that he is too familiar with the Muscovite fizz to make any such question necessary. About four o'clock I overtake a jack-booted horseman, who straightway proceeds to try and make himself agreeable. As his flowing remarks are mostly unintelligible, 
to spare him from wasting the sweetness of his eloquence on the desert air around me i reply turkchi binmus instead of checking the impetuous torrent of his remarks at hearing this he canters companionably alongside and chatters more persistently than ever turkchi binmus i repeat becoming rather annoyed at his persistent garrulousness and his refusal to understand this has the desired effect of reducing him to silence but he canters doggedly behind and after a space creeps up alongside again and pointing to a large stone building which has now become visible at the base of a mountain on the other side of the euphrates timidly ventures upon the explanation that it is the armenian gregorian monastery of sapaguanus st john finding me more favorably disposed to listen than before he explains that he himself is an armenian is acquainted with the priests of the monastery and is going to remain there overnight he then proposes that i accompany him thither and do likewise i am of course only too pleased at the prospect of experiencing something out of the common and gladly avail myself of the opportunity moreover monasteries and religious institutions in general have somehow always been pleasantly associated in my thoughts as inseparable accompaniments of orderliness and cleanliness and i smile serenely to myself at the happy prospect of snowy sheets and scrupulously clean cooking crossing the euphrates on a once substantial stone bridge now in a sadly dilapidated condition that was doubtless built when armenian monasteries enjoyed palmier days than the present we skirt the base of a compact mountain and in a few minutes alight at the monastery village exit immediately all visions of cleanliness the village is in no wise different from any other cluster of mud hovels round about and the rag bedecked flea-bitten objects that come out to gaze at us if such a thing were possible compare unfavorably even with the della baba curds there is apparent at once however a difference between the respective dispositions of the two peoples the curds are inclined to be pig-headed and obtrusive as though possessed of their full share of the spirit of self-assertion the sapoguanas people on the contrary act like beings utterly destitute of anything of the kind cowering beneath one's look and shunning immediate contact as though habitually overcome with a sense of their own inferiority the two priests come out to see the bicycle ridden they are stout bushy-whiskered greasy-looking old jokers with small twinkling black eyes whose expression would seem to betoken anything rather than saintliness and although the euphrates flows hard by they are evidently united in their enmity against soap and water if in nothing else in fact judging from outward appearances water is about the only thing concerning which they practice abstemiousness the monastery itself is a massive structure of hewn stone surrounded by a high wall looped hold for defense attached to the wall inside is a long row of small rooms or cells the habitations of the monks in more prosperous days 
A few of them are occupied at present by the older men. At 5.30 p.m., the bell tolls for evening service, and I accompany my guide into the monastery. It is a large, empty-looking edifice of simple, massive architecture, and appears to have been built with a secondary purpose of withstanding a siege or an assault, and as a place of refuge for the people in troublous times. Containing, among other secular appliances, a large brick oven for baking bread. During the last war, the place was actually bombarded by the Russians in an effort to dislodge a body of Kurds who had taken possession of the monastery, and from behind its solid walls harassed the Russian troops advancing towards Erzurum. The patched-up holes made by the Russian shots are pointed out, as also some light earthworks thrown up on the Russian position across the river. In these degenerate days, one portion of the building is utilized as a storehouse for grain. Hundreds of pigeons are cooing and roosting on the crossbeams, making their place their permanent abode, passing in and out of narrow openings near the roof, and the whole interior is in a disgustingly filthy condition. Rude fresco representations of the different saints in the Gregorian calendar formerly adorn the walls, and bright colored tiles embellish the approach to the altar. Nothing is distinguishable these days but the crumbling and half-obliterated evidences of past glories. Both priests and people seem hopelessly sunk in the quagmire of avariciousness and low cunning on the one hand, and of blind ignorance and superstition on the other. Clad in greasy and seedy-looking cowls, the priests go through a few nonsensical maneuvers, consisting chiefly of an ostentatious affectation of reverence toward an altar covered with tattered drapery. By never turning their backs toward it while they walk about, Bible in hand, mumbling and sighing, my self-constituted guide and myself comprise the whole congregation during the services. Whenever the priests have a particularly deep-fetched sigh, or fall to mumbling their prayers on the double-quick, they invariably cast a furtive glance towards me, to ascertain whether I am noticing the impenetrable depth of their holiness. They needn't be uneasy on that score, however. The most casual observer cannot fail to perceive that it is really and truly impenetrable, so impenetrable, in fact, that it will never be unearthed, not even at the day of judgment. In about ten minutes the priests quit mumbling, bestow a pharisaical kiss on the tattered coverlet of their Bibles, graciously suffer my jack-booted companion to do likewise, as also two or three ragamuffins who have come sneaking in seemingly for that special purpose and then retreat hastily behind a patchwork curtain. The next minute they reappear in a cowless condition, their countenances wearing an expression of intense relief, as though happy at having gotten through with a disagreeable task that had been weighing heavily on their minds all day. We are invited to take supper with their reverences in their cell beneath the walls which they occupy in common. The repast consists of yogurt and pilau, to which is added, by way of compliment to visitors, five salt fishes about the size of sardines. 
the most greasy-looking of the divines thoughtfully helps himself to a couple of the fishes as though they were a delicacy quite irresistible leaving one apiece for us others having created a thirst with the salty fish he then seizes what remains of the yogurt pours water into it mixes it thoroughly together with his unwashed hand and gulps down a full quart of the swill with far greater gusto than mannerliness soon the priests commence eructating aloud which appears to be a well understood signal that the limit of their respective absorptive capacities are reached for three hungry-eyed laymen who have been watching our repast with seemingly begrudging countenances now carry the wooden tray bodily off into a corner and ravenously devour the remnants everything about the cell is abnormally filthy and i am glad when the inevitable cigarettes are ended and we retire to the quarters assigned us in the village here my companion produces from some mysterious corner of his clothing a pinch of tea and a few lumps of sugar a villager quickly kindles a fire and cooks the tea performing the services eagerly in anticipation of coming in for a modest share of what to him is an unwonted luxury being rewarded with a tiny glassful of tea and a lump of sugar he places the sweet morsel in his mouth and sucks the tea through it with noisy satisfaction prolonging the presumably delightful sensation thereby produced to fully a couple of minutes during this brief indulgence of his palate a score of his ragged co-religionists stand around and regard him with mingled envy and covetousness but for two whole minutes he occupies his proud eminence in the lap of comparative luxury and between slow lingering sucks at the tea regards their envious attention with studied indifference one can scarcely conceive of a more utterly wretched people than the monastic community of Sapoguanus. One would not be surprised to find them envying even the pariah curs of the country. The wind blows raw and chilly from off the snowy slopes of Ararat next morning, and the shivering half-clad wretches shuffle off towards the fields and pastures, with blue noses and unwilling faces, humping their backs and shrinking within themselves and wearing most lugubrious countenances one naturally falls to wondering what they do in the winter the independent villagers of the surrounding country have a tough enough time of it worrying through the cheerless winters of a treeless and mountainous country but they at least have no domestic authority to bay but their own personal and family necessities and they consume the days huddled together in their unventilated hovels over a smouldering tzek fire but these people seem but helpless dolts under the vassalage of a couple of crafty-looking coarse-grained priests who regard them with less consideration than they do the monastery buffaloes eleven miles over a most rideable trail brings me to the large village of diadin diadin is marked on my map as quite an important place consequently i approach it with every assurance of obtaining a good breakfast my inquiries for refreshments are met with importunities of bin bakalem from five hundred of the ragtag and bobtail of the frontier 
the rowdiest and most inconsiderate mob imaginable. In their eagerness and impatience to see me ride, and their exasperating indifference to my own pressing wants, some of them tell me bluntly there is no bread. Others, more considerate, hurry away and bring enough bread to feed a dozen people, and one fellow contributes a couple of onions. Pocketing the onions and some of the bread, I mount and ride away from the maddening crowd with whatever dispatch is possible, and retire into a secluded dell near the road, a mile from town, to eat my frugal breakfast in peace and quietness. While thus engaged, it is with veritable savage delight that I hear a company of horsemen go furiously galloping past. They are diadem people, endeavoring to overtake me for the kindly purpose of worrying me out of my senses, and to prevent me even eating a bite of bread unseasoned with their everlasting gabble. Although the road from diadem eastward leads steadily upward, they fancy that nothing less than a wild, sweeping gallop will enable them to accomplish their fell purpose. I listen to their clattering hoofbeats dying away in the dreamy distance, with a grin of positively malicious satisfaction, hoping sincerely that they will keep galloping onward for the next twenty miles. No such happy consummation of my wishes occurs. However, a couple of miles up the ascent I find them hobnobbing with some Persian caravan men, and patiently awaiting my appearance, having learned from the Persians that I had not yet gone past. Mingled with the keen disappointment of overtaking them so quickly is the pleasure of witnessing the Persians' camels regaling themselves on a patch of juicy thistles of most luxuriant growth. The avidity with which they attack the great prickly vegetation and the expression of satisfaction utter and peculiar that characterizes a camel while munching a giant thistle stalk that protrudes two feet out of his mouth is simply indescribable. From this pass I descend into the Aras plain, and, behold, the gigantic form of Ararat rises up before me, seemingly but a few miles away. As a matter of fact, it is about twenty miles distance. From this pass I descend into the Aras plain, and, behold, the gigantic form of Ararat rises up before me seemingly but a few miles away as a matter of fact it is about twenty miles distant but with nothing intervening between myself and its tremendous proportions but the level plain the distance is deceptive no human habitations are visible save the now familiar black tents of kurdish tribesmen away off to the north and as i ride along i am overtaken by a sensation of being all alone in the company of an overshadowing and awe-inspiring presence. One's attention seems irresistibly attracted toward the mighty snow-crowned monarch, as though the immutable law of attraction were sensibly exerting itself to draw lesser bodies to it, and all other objects around seem dwarfed into insignificant proportions. One obtains a most comprehensive idea of Ararat 17,325 feet, when viewing it from the Aras plain, as it rises sheer from the plain and not from the shoulders of a range that constitutes of itself 
the greater part of the height, as do many mountain peaks. A few miles to the eastward is Little Ararat, an independent conical peak of 12,800 feet, without snow, but conspicuous as distinct from surrounding mountains. Its proportions are completely dwarfed and overshadowed by the nearness and bulkiness of its big brother. The Aras Plain is lava-strewn and uncultivated for a number of miles. The spongy, spreading feet of innumerable camels have worn paths in the hard lava deposits that makes the wheeling equal to English roads. Except for occasional stationary blocks of lava that the animals have systematically stepped over for centuries, and which not infrequently block the narrow trail and compel a dismount. Evidently, Ararat was once a volcano. The lofty peak, which now presents a wintry appearance even in the hottest summer weather, formerly belched forth lurid flames that lit up the surrounding country and poured out fiery torrents of molten lava that stratified the abutting hills and spread like an overwhelming flood over the Aras Plain. Abutting Ararat on the west are stratiform hills, the strata of which are plainly distinguishable from the Persian Trail and which, were their inclination continued, would strike Ararat at or near the summit. This would seem to indicate the layers to be representations of the mountain's former volcanic overflowings. I am sitting on a block of lava, making an outline sketch of Ararat, when a peasant happens along with a bullock load of cucumbers, which he is taking to the Kurdish camps. He is pretty badly scared at finding himself all alone on the Aras Plain, with such a nondescript and dangerous-looking object as a helmeted wheelman. And when I halt him with inquiries concerning the nature of his wares, he turns pale and becomes almost speechless with fright. He would empty his sacks as peace-offering at my feet without venturing upon a remonstrance were he ordered to do so. And when I relieve him of but one solitary cucumber, and pay him more than he would obtain for it among the Kurds, he becomes stupefied with astonishment. When he continues on his way, he hardly knows whether he is on his head or his feet. An hour later I arrive at Kazil Dizah, the last village in Turkish territory, and an official station of considerable importance, where passports, caravan permits, etc., of everyone passing to or from Persia have to be examined. An officer here provides me with refreshments, and while generously permitting the population to come in and enjoy the extraordinary spectacle of seeing me fed, he thoughtfully stations a man with a stick to keep them at a respectful distance. A later hour in the afternoon finds me trundling up a long acclivity leading to the summit of a low mountain ridge. Arriving at the summit, I stand on the boundary line between the dominions of the Sultan and the Shah, and I pause a minute to take a brief retrospective glance. The cyclometer, affixed to the bicycle at Constantinople, 
now registers within a fraction of one thousand miles. It has been on a whole an arduous thousand miles. But those who in the foregoing pages have followed me through the strange and varied experiences of the journey will agree with me when I say that it has proved more interesting than arduous after all. I need not here express any blunt opinions of the different people encountered. It is enough that my observations concerning them have been jotted down, as I have mingled with them and their characteristics from day to day. Almost without exception, they have treated me the best they knew how. It is only natural that some should know how better than others. Bidding farewell, then, to the land of the Crescent and the home of the unspeakable Osmanli, I wheel down a gentle slope into a mountain-environed area of cultivated fields, where Persian peasants are busy gathering their harvest. The strange apparition observed descending from the summit of the boundary attracts universal attention. I can hear them calling out to each other, and can see horsemen come wildly galloping from every direction. In a few minutes the road in my immediate vicinity is alive with twenty prancing steeds. Some are bestrode by men who, from the superior quality of their clothes and the gaudy trappings of their horses, are evidently in good circumstances. Others by wild-looking bare-legged bipeds, whose horses' trappings consist of nothing but a bridle. The transformation brought about by crossing the mountain ridge is novel and complete. The fez, so omnipresent throughout the Ottoman dominions, has disappeared as if by magic. The better-class Persians wear tall, brimless black hats of astrakhan lamb's wool. Some of the peasantry wear an unlovely, close-fitting skull-cap of thick gray felt that looks wonderfully like a bull clapped on top of their heads. Others sport a huge woolly headdress like the Romanians. This latter imparts to them a fierce, warlike appearance that the meek-eyed Persian riot, tiller of the soil, is far from feeling. The national garment is a sort of frock coat gathered at the waist and with a skirt of ample fullness, reaching nearly to the knees. Among the wealthier class, the material of this garment is usually cloth of a solid dark color, and among the riots or peasantry of calico or any cheap fabric they can obtain. Loose-fitting pantaloons of European pattern, and sometimes top boots, with tops ridiculously ample in their looseness, characterize the nether garments of the better classes. The riots go mostly bare-legged in summer, and wear loose, slipper-like footgear. The soles of both boots and shoes are frequently pointed, and made to turn up and inwards, after the fashion in England centuries ago. End of section 37. Recording by Paul Richards.